Good evening, friends. Good evening, and welcome one and all to Corbett Report Radio here on republicbroadcasting.org. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of western Japan. Eh, Not so sunny today, but still not a bad day regardless. And uh, for those of you who are wondering out there in Radioland and or Vodcast Land, if you're watching the video of this after the, uh, the broadcast airs, if I look a little tired, it's because I literally pulled an all-nighter working on my latest podcast episode, which I think is a particularly good episode and actually kind of a humorous one. It's talking about the place of comedy in the alternative media and uh, and uh, the onion and satire and things like that. So I think a pr- pretty interesting episode. And as part of that, I just uh, premiered a brand new satirical video uh, on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Corbett Report, so you can go there to watch it. It's called How to Foil Your Own Terror Plot, and it be- breaks down some of the uh, the phony terror busts that the FBI has conducted, where basically they're busting their own provocateurs that they've set up and uh, equipped and funded and trained and basically uh, set along the path towards terror. So I thought that would be a good subject for the latest satirical video, and uh, a lot of people seem to have agreed so far. It seems to be going somewhat viral, and we'll uh, we'll see if it goes as viral as my 9-11 video, but uh, at any rate, I hope you'll go and check that out. But tonight we're going to be talking, I guess, roughly along similar lines to that uh, that video, actually, and talking about the potential staged and certainly manipulated, and uh, and the reaction is uh, to this event is is I think going to be the key to it. But of course, we're talking about the shooting that occurred last week in Aurora, Colorado, at uh, the movie theater at the screening of The Dark Knight Rises, and lots and lots to say about that. So, in order to help us break that down, I have the good friend of this radio broadcast, John Rappaport of NoMoreFakeNews.com, on the line. You might remember him as the uh, one of the fill-in co-hosts while I was away uh, on vacation back in May. So, uh, John, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, James. Good to be here, as always. Well, it's good to have you here to break this down. I know you've been covering this and going through a lot of the data that's coming across the news wires, and there's so much to go through. Uh, unfortunately, just a short bre- uh, short segment here until the first break, but uh, let's start getting into some of the information and uh, what's really happening there in Colorado. Well, the first thing I would say is there are two witnesses. They have been interviewed, one certainly by local media and also by CNN, Corbin Dates is the first man's name, and we don't know the second man's name. They were in the theater. They saw things that contradict uh, whatever you might call an official scenario so far. One of them saw a gas canister come from a direction where the shooter wasn't. That implies an accomplice. The other saw a man sitting in the front of the theater on the right side, go take a cell phone call, go to an exit door, open it, prop it open with his foot, and then 15 to 20 minutes later, something like that, the shooter came through that door, that exit door. So this, if we are to take these witness statements as being credible, and they seem to be at first blush, totally destroys the scenario that we've been led to believe, which is that this crazed lunatic acted alone. And that's a good jumping-off point because we need to realize that we're not dealing with some sort of an ironclad story here. Far from it. 
Well, that's right. We're certainly in the midst of things when it comes to this story, and we can see the outlines of an official story starting to coalesce, and I think before that happens, we have to start uh, drawing attention to these, these alternative narratives, as you say, and taking a look at some of the pieces of the puzzle that don't seem to fit with what we're being told. But on that note, we are coming up against the first break, so we will take a short breather, and we'll be back to talk more about this Dark Knight Rises shooting in Colorado with John Rappaport of nomorefakenews.com. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you live on this Monday night edition of the broadcast. And tonight we're joined by John Rappaport of NoMoreFakeNews.com. And just before the break there, we were starting to dissect this Dark Knight Rises, this Batman shooting that took place in Aurora, Colorado last week. And uh, lots and lots of information coming down the newswire. So obviously, um, probably too much for any one person to keep up with at this point. But we are doing our best to sort through and see what what type of information sticks and what doesn't, and what we need to be concentrating on and what we don't. So uh, so let's let's pick up from where we left off right there before the break, John. And you were talking about some of the uh, the witness statements, or two in particular that seem to directly contradict the uh, the story as we've been told it so far. But uh, but let me play devil's advocate first. I I would uh, I would caution against using any particular witness statement as as any type of definitive account at this point. Obviously, there's there's way too much uh, it, that we don't know, and uh, one would expect some contradictory stories with witness statements, given how notoriously unreliable witness statements are. So uh, so I would caution against uh, going uh, reading too deeply into those uh, those two accounts. Yes, I agree. And I would also say, however, that there's no more reason to believe the police because they're notoriously wrong, and many times intentionally so. So, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, if James Holmes is indeed the guilty party here, if he's the shooter, how did he get into the theater? So far, we have no specific explanation for that. Here's a guy clad from top to bottom in body armor and throat and groin protection and helmet and gas mask carrying weapons, and he's inside the theater. So are we supposed to believe that he bought a ticket and stood in line with everybody else uh, when the temperature was something like 77 degrees out that night, and he just waltzed into the theater? and waited for a while, sitting down next to somebody who looks over and sees all this weaponry and armor, and then begins to open fire. To me, the more obvious story would be that somehow he was able to gain access to the theater reliably through well, a side exit. Correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, the, the, the official story so far is that he did come in through an emergency exit. I don't think anyone's disputing that. The question is how he 
how he managed to get in that emergency exit. And uh, yeah. I'm not All sure. Right. It, it, I, see, I'm not sure if anyone has even determined exactly the emergency exits in the theater in question and uh, whether they open from the inside or from the outside exclusively or et cetera, et cetera. So uh, if there's any pictures of this or, or anything we could use to, to come to a better understanding yeah, of the physical layout. Video cameras, which, of course, we'll never see the uh, mm-hmm. surveillance of probably. But here's the thing. If you're planning this operation for months, as the officials claim he was, then you're going to go to the theater and say, well, I hope the uh, exit door is somehow unlocked because I've got this thing all worked out and my apartment is rigged with explosives and there's music that's going to start playing very loudly at precisely midnight and therefore if anybody walks into my apartment, they're going to get blown up and I've got all the weapons and I've got these gas canisters, so gosh, oh, gee, I hope that I can get into the theater. I don't think so. So assuming that he got into the theater through, I mean, if the police are saying, yes, he got through a side exit, they're really going to leave it at that? I mean, how does he do that? How in the world does he know that the exit is going to be available to get in? Uh, I just, uh, you know, it, I think it does. And when we break it down to that level, it does beggar the imagination that he would have spent months planning this operation without an assured way of getting into the theater, assuming that yeah. was his end goal. Right. And one would assume if this was just a random crazy person who just wanted to kill people, that he would just blast his way in through the, the, the ticket checkout or whatever. He wouldn't go in through a side door in order to get into the, the theater directly. I mean, that, it does point to some degree of complicity somewhere with someone who was able to let him in or he knew some trick for getting in yeah something and uh then of course there's the whole question of how did he become the person that he became from an extremely bright neuroscience student on a fellowship from the national institutes of health university of colorado denver to the joker with you know crazed drugged out, whatever, weapons, killing people. In a few short years, how does this happen? And my attitude toward these things, and I started investigating uh, events like this in 1995 with the Oklahoma bombing, was question everything. Don't accept any scenario. For example, I don't accept that he's in the theater shooting everybody. I don't know that for a fact. Nobody can ID him. I mean, who could see who it was? He's wearing a gas mask. He's clad from toe to foot with armor and black stuff, and he's got guns, and he's shooting. So let me just give you an alternative scenario here. Let's suppose that this is actually a covert op designed and planned for motives that we can get into later, but they're fairly obvious. The idea is they need a patsy. They need somebody that they can pre-program and drug out to the point where he will be the one standing at the exit when this is all over, saying to the police, I did it, and by the way, my apartment, which I took God knows how many days to rig with very complex explosives, I'm now telling you that's what's there. I intended for to kill you, but now I'm going to tell you to be careful. And he's the one that's going to be there at the end, the patsy. Okay? So we have 
a few professionals who get into the theater, massacre everybody, slip out the side exit, douse him with gun residue, leave him standing there. They disappear into the night. The cops show up, and he's there, and he says, I did it. That, to me, is just as plausible as what we're being presented with now. Because how does this guy, for example, rig all of these complex explosives in his apartment? We, some people say, well, he was a science student. <laughs> yeah, well, I know a lot of science students who couldn't do that. Where does he gain this knowledge and information? Well, it's much more explicable to say, no, the pros did it. They, people who were involved in the covert op, they were the ones who wired up the whole thing. So, again, I don't accept anything here, especially the official explanation here or the fact that he is the guy. We have to look at this from levels. We can assume he is the guy, in which case we want to know a lot about his past. Or we assume he isn't the guy, in which case we want to know a lot about how this could have been put together to make him the Oswald at the end standing there outside the theater. And we have to look at it from both angles. We, we certainly do. And uh, as far as I understand, so he has already appeared in court for some sort of arraignment hearing, and he was apparently quite uh, dazed and confused looking. Um, I, I didn't follow that. Did he actually say anything in court? Was he? Was there any indication that he, he was willing to plead guilty or anything of that sort? No. He just sat there next to his attorney, his uh, public defender. He looked exhausted, dehydrated, drugged, slow-moving, his eyes were downcast most of the time. It was just several minutes. He came, he went. That was it. He still had his orange red hair. He's wearing an orange jumpsuit. He looked drugged, which raises another question. If he was, where is he getting his drugs? Is this a leftover from the night of the killings? Uh, don't know about that. If it isn't, who gave him the drugs in prison? Is some doctor writing a prescription? Is this just Vicodin we're talking about, or is it a lot more? And I think we have to look at the possibility that it, if we assume that he was either the killer or he was part of a covert op, I think we have to assume that drugs are involved either way, significant, serious brain drugs. And then we want to know what they were and who administered them to him. Well, I am not one to diagnose based on the way people look, but certainly um, if there was ever a case where you could do so, it's uh, just looking at some of the pictures of him from this proceeding. Yeah, there's no no question that he's definitely dazed out on, on something. So whether he's had some sort of psychotic break or whether he's on some sort of psychotic uh, substance. But it, yeah, absolutely, that would raise the question of uh, what su substance, where did he get it, when did he ingest it? Because obviously this isn't a leftover from last week. So clearly there's uh, there's some kind of manipulation going on if that is uh, a pharma pharmacologically induced state and uh, again it's speculation at this point but at the very least we could have informed speculation on that point given the history of some of the mass shootings we've seen in the past yes for example columbine where we know that one of the shooters eric harris was on luvox and luvox is one of the ssri antidepressants that is known 
through studies, clinical evidence, court cases to produce violent behavior. And in an interview that I did with a psychiatrist, Dr. Peter Bregan, he made it clear to me, because I questioned him on this point, I said, well, are we talking simply about impulsive violence in the moment? He said, no, 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 no. He said, this can produce a drug like Lubox, for example, a manic state in which a person will begin to make grandiose plans to destroy large numbers of people. It's kind of chilling that such drugs even exist, let alone that they're, uh, that they're handed out like candy to so many people. Well, let's, let's stop there. Let's take another short breather. If you want to get in on tonight's conversation with any pieces of this puzzle you'd like to bring to the table, 1-800-313-9443. And uh, stay, stay tuned. We'll be right back. You know it's time to get the facts All right, friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking about the Dark Knight Rises shooting that occurred in Colorado last week, and we have John Rappaport of NoMoreFakeNews.com on the line. And once again, if you'd like to get in on this conversation and bring any points into this conversation that you'd like to hear discussed, you can do so at 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443. I will also be keeping my Twitter feed open, so if you want to tweet any questions or comments at Corbett Report, I'll do my best to get to them on air. So, uh, John, let's continue along the lines of what we were talking about just a moment ago with the uh, some of the, the drugs that uh, that are often involved in these mass shootings, and we talked about Columbine as being one of the obvious examples. Um, obviously, other examples as well in which the people involved have been up on these uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors that seem time and time again to be linked to these, to these mass shootings. Yes, Kip Kinkle, I think he was 14 years old up in Oregon, was involved in a school shooting. He was on one of the antidepressants, I believe it was Prozac. A lot of these work the same way. Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Wellbutrin. They scramble neurotransmitters. The researchers claim that they've really got this pinpointed. Oh, yes, we're, we're fooling around a little bit with serotonin levels, and when we get those right, everything's perfect. But that is a complete lie. It's just like rolling the dice on the brain when you give one of these compounds. In fact, there's a famous case called the Fentress case, sometimes called the Westbecker case, in the early 1990s. When Prozac was first introduced, there was a spate of violence, murders, killings, suicides, people that were taking Prozac. And Eli Lilly, the manufacturer, was in deep trouble. And so they decided they were going to put all their marbles into this one case that had to do with Joseph Westbecker, who had shot and killed a number of people at his place of employment in Kentucky, and the families of the dead were suing Lilly because Westbecker had been on Prozac. And it's a fairly long story, but the gist of it was that lined up behind this case were numbers of others waiting to go, same kinds of lawsuits. And the judge realized at some point, Judge Potter, in the lawsuit in which Eli Lilly was a defendant, that something weird was going on. And he called the lawyers in and he said to the lawyer for the 
plaintiffs, the families, is money changing hands here? And he didn't like the answer because he felt that the lawyer for the plaintiffs was putting on an intentionally weak case. And indeed, the verdict went to Lilly. And then it was discovered, in fact, you know, to a significant degree of certainty that a huge payment had been made under the table during the trial to the lawyer and his clients, the plaintiffs, on the condition that Lilly would win the case, which they did. And therefore, all of these other class actions or all of these other suits against Lilly went by the boards automatically because everybody knew they would lose. So they dropped all the lawsuits. They went away. And the judge kicked up the case to an appeals court in Kentucky because he said, something is wrong here. This is not a fair trial. It appears that money has changed hands. And the appeals court deliberated and deliberated, eventually kicked it back downstairs again. And finally, the judgment was allowed to remain, and the whole thing just settled out in a muddle of mud. That's the kind of thing that went on early in the history of these antidepressants. Violence, suicide, murder, lawsuits. And the press is very careful. I mean, I can tell you because I've... I've spent a lot of time over the years, not so much anymore, trying to pierce the curtain on these shootings, you know, these inexplicable shootings, to find out what was the guy, what drug was he on, who prescribed it. And the press is very close to the vest about this. They don't want to get into it. The cops don't want to get into it. The DAs don't want to get into it. And I've spoken with cops and DAs about this, and they tell me, look, this is one of the reasons why. We use psychiatrists as expert witnesses for the prosecution. So if we become known as people who are challenging psychiatrists to the point where we're saying that they're criminals prescribing certain drugs that are causing people to go out and commit murder, we're cutting our own throats. Plus, we've got pharmaceutical companies down our necks. Because they're very cognizant of these. You can be sure that right now in Aurora, Colorado, the pharmaceutical companies that make Ritalin and the various antidepressants have their eyes on the ball. They have people on the scene. They know what's happening. If James Holmes had a doctor, a psychiatrist who prescribed these drugs to him, they know who he is. And they more more so than we do, of course, and uh, that's that's the uh, the unlevel playing field that we're always playing on when it comes to these types of cases. And once again, we're just trying to find out what we can from the various sources that we have uh, before the official narrative starts to form, and all of the other alternative um, pieces of that puzzle start to get shut down and dismissed as conspiracy theory. But once again, we are running up against the break, so let's take a short breather. Once again, we're talking to John Rappaport of NoMoreFakeNews.com. I suggest you go there, and specifically to his blog on WordPress, where he's uh, got several articles now about this, uh, going into some depth about this case. So let's take a short break, and we'll be right back once again talking about the Dark Knight Rises shooting that occurred in Colorado last week. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Corporate Report Radio friends. You are tuned into republicbroadcasting.org on this Monday night edition of the broadcast. And tonight, once again, we are talking to John Rappaport of nomorefakenews.com, and we're discussing the details, scanty as they may be right now, of what is actually coming out about this Dark Knight Rises shooting. And uh, we're just trying to piece together what we can from the pieces of information that we have. And just to make sure that I have the uh, the the most accurate information here. Uh, John, I'm not sure I've been following this quite as closely as you, so perhaps you'll be better situated to answer this. But as far as I know, the only uh, drug substance that uh, that has been confirmed, or the, uh, the the authorities, the officials, man, I hate that language, but what, are, what else are you going to say, are confirming in this case is uh, Vicodin so far. But uh, we really, of course, don't know anything about his medical history or what other substances he may have been on. That's right, Vicodin. And I have to tell you, Vicodin, because I looked it up, it can cause violent behavior. I have a little personal experience with the drug myself. I mean, I, I rarely, if ever, take a drug, but if I do, it's for, you know, pain. And, um, after a day on Vicodin, I said, I would rather experience the pain. To me, it's a very nasty drug. It's a twister. It isn't just, okay, I want to go to sleep. In my experience, and I've talked to other people who've taken it, if you're fairly sensitive to that kind of drug, you will notice some bizarre kinds of mental effects. Very much fogginess, could be irritability, could be aggressive behavior. All sorts of things are possible on it. So even that is not a good idea, (laughs) you know, to know that Holmes uh, was ingesting Vicodin. But, yes, you're right. Beyond that, we don't know. We don't know for Let, sure. Let's talk about some of the other things that we're in a gray area about. For example, his academic background and even the neuroscience program he was involved in at the University of Colorado. I understand they've taken their website offline now. Yeah, the, the neuroscience department webpage is offline. They claim it's for protection. You know, the faculty doesn't want to get involved with people. Uh, I don't know what they would do. Uh, press interviews, is that a threat? Uh, I rather think, you know, here's one of the main things, James, in the, in the scene there. Where's the FBI? At Columbine, they were everywhere. They were all over the scene. <clears throat> they were making public statements. We know, we know what good, what good job they did messing that investigation yeah, exactly. up. But. There's 101 witnesses in the Columbine case that will say and have said that they saw at least one other shooter. 101. And this never got out, I mean, in any way in the mainstream press. There was a lawsuit about it, which failed. But anyway, the FBI was all over the scene. They were, of course, as they do, attracting a tremendous amount of attention making public statements, processing evidence, interviewing witnesses, telling witnesses to shut up, because we have statements on the record about that. So I believe what's happening here is smaller is better is a strategy. It's a local crime. We have the perpetrator. Let's see if we can push this through the system with a guilty plea or... Uh, no, he's incompetent to cooperate in his own defense, therefore we're going to consign him to a mental institution for observation and treatment for a period of 60 to 90 days. Then we'll bring him back and we'll see, and hopefully they'll get a guilty plea at that point. 
This, I believe, at least so far, is the strategy. They want this to be low profile. They don't want to mess around here with some huge investigation because they saw what happened to it in Columbine. It was a total disaster. So I can't recall the question that started all this now, but that's where I took it. <laughs> um, I can't either at this exact moment, but I'm I'm sure it was related. Well, I'm, I, sure, I'm sure we're on drugs, right? <laughs> Perhaps we are. We didn't know uh, But, I mean, this is important for people to understand the the way it's being shaped, the way the investigation is is being moved along. I am sure that there are other witnesses out there besides the two I mentioned at the top of the show who saw things that would contradict the official scenario. And there's a good chance that they have been interviewed. And if they have been interviewed by the FBI, I would be willing to bet serious money that the FBI has said to them, we don't want you to say anything about anything to anybody. And if, if they're asked why by the witnesses, the FBI simply says, well, you understand, this is an investigation, and there can be a trial. And if things are said to the press and so on, this can affect the outcome of the trial. You don't want to see this man get away, do you? This is the usual strategy that they took in Columbine and also in other cases. So these people shut up. Well, what It's I... difficult to worm inside the official scenario. Well, what I see happening at this point, and, and I'm, I would be glad to be wrong about this, but what it looks like what's happening right now is this is just turning into kind of an, an, an image or, a, a, an icon, I guess, in, in American politics. And it's going to be remembered as the, the Batman shooting, and it will be these images that we're seeing now of the people grieving. And that will just be the iconic thing. And the story will start to shift away from any of the details about what actually took place towards just talking about the tragedy that occurred and what we're going to do about it. And I, I notice, for example, I mean, it's just one small indication, but right now on the top of Google News, this story has been at the top for the last few days, and we've been seeing lots and lots of different reports coming out on all sorts of various aspects of this. But now, uh, at the current moment, the only uh, Google News story I'm getting on the front page uh, about this is just a, a pictorial from the Washington Post that just shows, literally just shows pictures of uh, the people grieving. And uh, I'm, I'm seeing that, that trend in the, the narrative of how this is going to be covered in the media. You bet. There's, it's almost as if uh, there's a schedule. And, in fact, there is a kind of schedule. So you have the witness statements, minimal, but lots of interviews with families of the deceased. You have vigils. You have memorials. You have funerals. You have grieving. You have grief counselors. You have the, let the healing begin. You have all of this, let us all come together. All of that rhetoric, you see. And I mean, I followed this through many of these incidents, and it plays out the same way. And part of the reason that it plays out the same way is, as you said, but I'll take it one step further, it's for the express purpose of leading you away from the details of the case. This is not something that private citizens are supposed to concern themselves with, you see. Now, in the case of the Oklahoma bombing, where I cut my teeth on this kind of investigation, the citizens rose up. There were several, not just good, not just great, 
but phenomenal private citizen investigations of the bombing, including an informal citizen grand jury headed up by Representative Charles Key. There was a 17-year ongoing probe of the bombing still going on by Patrick Briley in Oklahoma City, quite a brilliant investigator who was served under Admiral Rickover in the Navy. There was a book called Day One, compiled by a woman, uh, Michelle Moore, in Oklahoma City. I hope I have her name right. She went out and interviewed hundreds of people in Oklahoma City. She was not a professional journalist. She outdid any professional journalist on exactly what they witnessed and saw and experienced on the day of the bombing. And she compiled a significant amount of counter-evidence to the government scenario. This is not supposed to happen, you see. The officials do not want this to rise to that level. And so the way to dampen it is through, unfortunately, the very real grief. That's the way they dampen the whole thing. They play to the grief. The president does, the media does, the politicians do, and that leads people away from... You know, there was a guy up in Columbine, the father of one of the kids who was killed. He became so outraged when he began to learn that there were other witnesses who saw other shooters that he filed a lawsuit and he began to talk to the press. And for a while, he actually held center stage. But by and large, the people are too traumatized to do anything like this. And the media feeds into that and feeds into that. And that's why we don't see citizen investigations of these events. But with the Internet, that's changing. Yes, it is. And uh, and hopefully we can continue that trend and continue to expand it before they start cracking down on the Internet. But as you say, uh, OKC was definitely an example where citizens managed to, to uncover much more than was ever let on in the mainstream media about what happened there. And uh, and I, I think you're right. I think in the wake of uh, of tragedies like this, we are seeing more and more of this. And I think it's going to be more and more difficult to contain, really, a lot of these types of alternative narratives, given just the uh, the prevalence of of social media, even, and being able to piece together so many different facets of something that's happening, even in real time. So censorship can only uh, work if it's if it's applied, you know, prior constraint, basically. So. So I'm not sure really how the the, um, the powers that shouldn't be are really going to deal with this phenomenon if they can at all. I was talking to somebody today in an interview. Can you imagine what would happen if the JFK assassination occurred today? The Zapruder film would be on YouTube in an hour. And let's say conservatively 600 million views the first and it would probably be from 50 different angles because everyone would have their own cell phone camera. Right? Yeah, that's right. Forget just the pruder, right? And then we have witnesses. People would be ferreting out Clay Shaw. Jim Garrison would be talking on YouTube. We would have all the investigations of CIA connections, the mob, and so on. All of this would be brought out, I would say, in the first six weeks. And they would not be able to do what they did in Dallas in 1963. It would be absolutely impossible. And I thought that was very interesting. The one thing that we have to guard against here is that the emotion of the moment 
become so overwhelming to people that they just can't look at the details of what actually happened and the contradictions involved, because there are definitely contradictions here. Absolutely, and I think that's exactly what happened with uh, with 9-11. I think um, the the emotions involved were just so incredibly high at that point that people just could not possibly entertain any idea other than what they were being told on CNN. That's right, because that's what people want. They want to know what happened from the official authorities, and then they want to grieve, and then they want to know, okay, who did it, and what are we going to do about it? You know? And, of course, that was not allowed to happen because of the presence of the Internet, because people immediately began to question the official scenario. I mean, within the first 24 hours... I certainly was, and other people were, and then it just built and built and built and built. And it will never go away. It will never, absolutely never go away. And so I I think that this story of Aurora has a significant, such a significant impact for various reasons that we're going to see more emerge fairly soon. And people are not going to buy into the official scenario. I certainly Unless they can prove it. Okay, offer us the evidence. Don't just tell us. Show us. Yeah, show us the, the security camera footage of him getting in the exit door or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I, I, I hope that you're right about that. I trust that you're right about that. I think the genie is out of the bottle in so many ways that uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to put the, uh, the stuff the genie back into that bottle. And uh, at this point, I'm not even sure that would really be possible because any significant crackdown on the Internet is obviously going to be met with a lot of resistance, all things being equal, and who knows what other types of events they'll stage. Well, there's a couple of things that occur to me right now. First of all, um, with uh, something, a story like this that dominates the headlines for several days uh, to the exclusion of all else, it always makes me wonder what they're trying to slip in under the radar. But uh, other than that, also, I'm, I'm interested in uh, the, the ramifications of this. Obviously, if this is, whether this has been staged or not, the fact that it is gaining so much attention means it is going to be used to further some sort of agenda. There's always an agenda that can be furthered along with every tragedy, as we are all too painfully familiar. So, uh, so where do you think this is heading, and uh, what's, what's the likely outcome of this? The Arms Trade Treaty at the United Nations. <clears throat> Uh, the final discussions began on July 3rd. They wind up on the 27th. So right smack in the middle of this, this is all about uh, limiting the ability of nations to export weapons to other nations. But in the wording, the vague wording of the treaty, this is a treaty that's going to be signed by nations. There is sufficient wiggle room so that nations, for example, the United States, could begin to use this treaty as a means for confiscating weapons on a mass basis and override the Second Amendment because this is an international treaty. In order, the United States government will sign the treaty. This is, this is a done deal, as far as I'm concerned. But the Senate has to ratify it in order for it to become a treaty. That's where this event plays in, the shooting. Because now 
there will be a wave front of pressure on the senators to sign and ratify the treaty. That's what, to me, is the ultimate motivation behind all of this. To take yet another step toward Second Amendment gun confiscation. Now, as I wrote recently, in April, in Aurora, at the New Destiny Church, there was almost another massacre. A convicted felon drove up to the church during the service in his car, agitated, out of control for whatever reason, crashed his car in the parking lot. The mother of the pastor ran outside to see if she could help him. He put five bullets into her and killed her. He went to move into the church in the middle of the service, and the pastor's cousin, who happened to be just lucky, an off-duty Denver policeman carrying his weapon, shot and killed this guy who would have been another James Holmes. Now, Aurora has a law against carrying weapons in public. If you're a private citizen, you cannot carry a weapon in public. So if that off-duty cop hadn't been there, there was nobody else to look to. It was curtains for everybody in that church. Exactly right. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. Exactly right. And uh, victim disarmament zones are great places for criminals to go hunting, unfortunately. So uh, we have to keep that in mind. And, of course, the usual sub- suspects are already rolling out their tweets against the Second Amendment, uh, Rupert Murdoch and Jason Alexander and people like that. Okay, let's take our final break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Here we are in the final few minutes of tonight's broadcast of Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we've been talking to John Rappaport of NoMoreFakeNews.com. So, John, just in the final few minutes here, let's uh, let's just pick up from where we left off right before the break, talking about some of the people who are out attacking the Second Amendment and demonizing that in the wake of this tragedy. Um, what What is there to say about this other than, uh, than some of the, the cringeworthy statements that have already been made and we're likely to see coming out of this? Mind-boggling. First of all, I think what's at the bottom of this is that these people have some kind of almost religious faith in the government. The government is good. That's basically their bias. The government is good. They may not say it, but since they believe it, then the idea that the government has all the weapons along with the criminals and that private citizens have no weapons is fine with them because they see that as benign. Well, the government would never use that against people. It's like when Obama says, well, yes, I signed the NDAA, but I would never order the assassination of an American citizen, even though it's now a law that I can. You know, it's that sort of, it's the sense that certain people have that the government is a very good thing. I don't mean in abstract, I mean as it really is the octopus that keeps expanding because they see it as, you know, a sort of a giant truck that distributes goodness to everybody. That's how they see that. So if the government has guns, they're going to use them judiciously, not like this, quote, lunatic in the theater at the Batman premiere. 
so that's the make break point, you see, because there are others of us <laughs> who see this in a distinctly different way. We have the audacity to go back to the actual founding documents of the republic and say, yes, there was a very good reason to install limited government and very powerful individual rights right from the start, based upon not only the experience in Europe, but on human nature and what power does to people. And therefore, that's what we still want. And we don't believe that the government is intrinsically good. And we can go back, as you have, I have, many people have, and we can point to many, 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 many government covert ops in the past in which horrible things have been done in the name of government. And then we can point to things that government has done right out in the open and say, this too was terrible. So I think that's what we're dealing with, is that fundamental divide. And frankly, I just don't think these people that want to, you know, destroy the Second Amendment have actually ever really looked at government as a whole, federal government. They only look at what they like, and then they assume that the rest of it they're going to like too. You know, that's their attitude. Or at the very least, they can blame all of the ills that they see on the other side of that political paradigm, that phony left-right paradigm, so that uh, all the goodness comes from the left, for example, and all the badness from the right. And therefore, as long as we can get the right crooks in government, uh, I mean the right politicians in government. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, you see. And they judge that. I would say their yardstick is, how much is the government giving away to people? If the government is giving and giving and giving more and more and more and more and more, no matter what it does to people, no matter, no matter how, how it much it takes that, from yeah, exactly. That's a good thing. Right. Okay. Well, we're fresh out of time. We're going to have to leave the conversation there. So once again, John Rappaport, no more fake news com. I hope you go there to check out his reporting on this and many other subjects. John, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much, James. Always and- look. Excellent. And thank you all out there for listening. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I'm looking forward to doing this all again with you tomorrow night, 23 hours from now. So stay tuned for that. Until then, thank you for listening and take care.